right. Bon Appetit Foodcast. I'm Adam Rappaport. This week, senior editor Neil Stonick uh, interviews Andy Young, a natural winemaker from the Pacific Northwest. Andy runs a label called St. Reginald Parish because he is originally from New Orleans and is now making some spectacular wines in the wonderful state of Oregon, one of which has kind of quickly become my favorite. It's called the Marini. Uh, we shattered it out in our December issue, Best Things We Ate and Drank All Year. It's a sort of a carbonic red, uh, and it's delicious. And when the new vintage comes back uh, in stores, be sure to look for it. Um, they talk about how Andy got started as a musician, uh, how he became interested in making wine, what his process is like, and how it has changed over the years. After that, I chat with senior food editor Chris Morocco about a new recipe he developed for BA.com, spicy sweet sambal pork noodles. While he was testing this recipe, uh, the entire office literally could not stop eating it. All right, let's do this thing. Here's a meal with Andy Young. Hi, Andy. Hi. For all of you listeners out there, I'd like to uh, welcome you to Andy and my first date. I love Andy. I don't know if he knows that, but we don't really know that much about each other. But I, I will tell one one brief story about Andy and my first meeting, which was at Feast Portland at the Bon Appetit after party. And Marissa introduced me to Andy. And then I found out that he makes the Marini, which was, was and is like my favorite wine of all time. And I was like, also, I was naturally quite drunk. And I was like, oh, my God, I love your wine so much. I think I drank all the bottles in New York City. All I want is to have that wine at my wedding. What is there any left? And he said, there are four cases left. I need one for reference for the next vintage, and I'll send you the other three. And it was the, it was the hit wine of our of our wedding so it's it's will forever your wine will forever be a part of my uh of my story how could i not (laughs) yeah well you know i mean i feel like that was like something that you know when we were talking a little bit earlier about this like one of the things that's really exciting about natural wine and and one of the things that really intrigues me is that there are real people behind it people you can meet and like experience their generosity and their kind of philosophy on things and their just like way of being in the world firsthand. It isn't like, you know, behind like a, like veneer or like a veil of like marketing materials and like, you know, slick photos of like people standing in front of massive know. chateaus. Yeah, exactly. I feel like there's, um, there's a small, small timeness to it that makes it feel more exciting, I think, for a lot of people, at least for myself. So, I mean, not knowing all that much about you other than you're my man and you sent me a whole bunch of wine, what's what's your story, Andy? How'd you, how did you get into wine? Because you're not from... So, you make wine in the Pacific Northwest outside of Portland. Yeah, about yeah. an hour outside the city southwest. But yeah. you did not grow up in Portland. I didn't. Uh, my family is all from Louisiana, seven generations back, as far as I can tell, uh, sort of... You know, we lose track of it at a certain point. But I grew up in South Louisiana. Uh, that's why the Marini label is called the Marini. It's a neighborhood in New Orleans, the mm-hmm. Faubourg uh, specifically. But that really just means commune uh, in the French. So one of the things that we wanted to do with the Marini, or I wanted to do when I started uh, working on the initial wines, was make something that just felt neighborhoody and approachable and swaffy and, and easy to get into and 
you know, you Swaffy. could drink it on the porch, you know, on a Tuesday and, and not worry about it too much. So I take it that those seven generations of uh, family that you can trace back in uh, southern Louisiana were not winemakers? My father was a Southern Baptist preacher, so no. <laughs> <laughs> so I, he wasn't, he wasn't like, uh, didn't have like a deep wine cellar that he introduced you to, and that's, it's, this yeah, is not one more, of those more like a deep iced tea cellar. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I did not grow up around it. I was peripherally around it in New Orleans, obviously, but did not grow up with it on the table, had no knowledge of it. My mother is a musician, um, piano player, and I became a musician, and that was sort of my path. I went to an arts magnet high school uh, in Memphis. Uh, We had moved up there for a church. And in college, I was also playing all the way through, had a band. um, What was your instrument? Drums. Drums. All right. I pegged you for a drummer. Yeah. You know, so the band was called Lift to Experience. We signed a record deal with a label called Belly Union that's owned by the Cocteau Twins. Oh, wow. And um, basically kind of were on tour for most of my 20s. and at a certain point, as most bands do, there was a massive implosion. <laughs> <laughs> and I spent a couple of years sort of wandering the desert. Uh, Literally or figuratively? I mean, I was in Austin, so nearly. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and just decided, you know what, we've, uh, I've really enjoyed my time in Portland when we were touring up there. I needed scenery change. I'm going to just pack my car and drive up there. I had a old Volvo station wagon. I, to this day, cannot believe that it made it all the way to Portland. What year? I used to have a old 93. Volvo. I had a 93 Volvo station wagon. What Those color? Those things are tough as nails. It was uh, like a red. A red. Okay. I had sort like of, powder blue. Oh. But those things, they it, mine ran until the odometer stopped working. Oh, totally. I sold mine to a guy in Eugene, Oregon uh, at a certain point for more than I paid for it in Texas. Wow. Yeah, people, Oregon people, people are freaks about those cars. Love those cars. People like pull up to you on the highway and they're like, "What year? Yeah, how many <laughs> miles you got?" You're like, "This is very unsafe. Our cars can't do this." <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And the Volvo D240 was the Subaru of Portland now. Uh-huh, you know, uh-huh. you go to Portland now, eighty percent Subarus. Yeah, Portland uh-huh. in two thousand seven, a hundred percent Volvo. Oh, times have changed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so so you packed up your <laughs> Volvo station wagon. Not to derail. Sorry to derail that. And you headed for Portland. Yeah. Did you um, know people in Portland? Not really. No. Uh, I mean, I had a few contacts. I had a publicist friend that had worked with us in the Northwest that sort of set me up with a place to live. It was really cheap back Mm -hmm. then. It was before the sort of boom happened. It was right in that time period. What year are we talking about? 2007. Okay, okay. So like Le Pigeon had just opened up. It was the food scene was in its infancy Mm -hmm. as far as what has happened to it over the last 12 years. And I knew not much about food and was really more interested in maybe writing about music. My degree is in English. I thought I would sort of transition into a a more journalism kind of role um, and stop playing drums all the time. And I got a job at a wine bar to kind of make ends meet while I was trying to build my portfolio of writing. So was that your first was that your first food service job? Had you had you worked at other I restaurants had worked, and bars and stuff like that? My before? first job in Memphis was washing dishes at a little soul food cafe. Uh-huh. And then my second job and I was coming up in the world was waiting tables at Shoney's. 
All right. Yeah. Shonies. <laughs> <laughs> so you weren't like, it wasn't like totally out of the blue that you were taking a job at a restaurant. I mean, I was interested in it. Yeah. For sure. And had bartended at kind of the local rock club uh-huh. in Denton, Texas, where I went to college. So bartending didn't feel that much of a stretch. But this place was essentially a small plate restaurant, sort of farm to table, very early beginning stages and that kind of stuff. It was called Terroir. Uh-huh. And it was just early stages of those kind of places kind of popping up in Portland. The wine list was all Pacific Northwest. So it was Oregon and Washington only. And I just fell in love with it, like right off the bat. And even though I didn't think I want to be a producer, I want to work in the industry, that took a few years. But I did develop a desire to want to taste all the time. Yeah. And going to tastings and started to go out to the valley. And about three years, four years later was when I thought, I'm going to work a harvest. I moved back to Texas to work on a record uh, with my bandmates, my former bandmates, that was sort of complete. I had taken a job in the advertising industry with my degree and worked a few years as a copywriter Yeah, and uh, developed some design skills. Um, that's how the, the labels are done. Oh, so you make the labels. Yeah. Okay. And in the end, I just said, I want to get back to something that feels a little more physical. I think all those years of drumming sort of made me want to be up and about and sort of doing something uh, with my hands. Yeah. Well, it's, it's so interesting because I feel like there is so much... The kind of like music wine connection feels like really rich. Like there are a lot of, I feel like a lot of people who are who are into, you know, well, drinking wine, but but like making wine or you know, a lot of people who kind of have like ended up in the like professional wine world are people who were in music or still are have one foot in music. And there's something about that kind of like the physical and the like sublime. You know, you're like actually, it is a made product but you know made by people mm-hmm. and their hands and their physical labor to this like kind of weird extent i have a lot of people talk to me about the the connection between the music and the wine yeah i think that when you're first starting out and i didn't come from uh, a wine background obviously you know i i started late i was yeah. 34 when i did my first harvest you know i've been playing drums and been in the advertising industry and there was really no time to go to school and figure it out. Um, I just had to kind of jump in with both feet. I did a couple of internships. I stayed with my uh, my mentor for two harvests while I was making the first couple of vintages of St. Mm-hmm. Reginald. And by 15, when the first vintage of the Marini came out, um, that was when I think my idea about what I wanted to do with it and what I could have to say with it was just starting up. Yeah. You know, it's the experimentation piece. Aside from its craft and its art, there's also a piece of, we don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. And we're okay with that. In, in a way, we're more than okay with that. Yeah. Because we want, we want to be surprised by oh. what's on the other side of it. Totally. And there's that, you know, I feel like that's the, the kind of tension between, like, control and the, just the possibility for, like, magic and beauty and whatever. It's like, I feel like that is, you know, also with with music and wine it's like you have a certain kind of control but you're also like working with people and you know all of these other factors and variables that kind of overwhelm the ability to control anything and make it exactly what you first thought it was going to be absolutely and the craziest thing about making wine is that you only get to practice it once a year right 
you know, in a way, I'm putting out this vintage was number six for me, and I'm putting out a dish that I've only tested six times. Right. Right. You know, like every year, I'm trying to perfect it, and for me, that means emotionally. Right. You know, there is no mountaintop. You know, this is what is perfect. Every year, the the line moves a little bit. Right. Um, it's really just what emotionally moves you. But you only get to do it that that one, you know, four or five week period when the fruit is coming in. Um, and then you have to kind of take notes and take mental notes and hope that, you know, when it comes around next year, you can apply some of those principles instead of, hey, tomorrow when we practice, uh, let's take this thing that we kind of fell into and work on it again. Totally. I mean, I think that that to me is the the thing that's so fascinating about, you know, it's like, I feel like we talk about natural wine kind of like in quotes and it's, you know, means those two words together kind of mean everything and nothing at the same time. And I feel like people critique or like one critique that people have of natural wine is consistency. You know, they're like, oh, it's, you know, I I think about like my dad, who's kind of like an old school, like Napa wine Mm -hmm. guy, you know, you know, he's like, well, you know, it's like, you know, I, I feel like when you're not, uh, you know, you have these kind of like smaller producers, whatever, the wine is less consistent. And to me, I feel like I'm like, hell yeah. You know, Great. well, that's the thing that's cool. That's like why people see live music because you're like, maybe something different's going to happen this time. And maybe it's going to be like, maybe you're going to want like one vintage more than the other, but it doesn't mean you don't want to see both shows, you know? Absolutely. And that's, you, you want, both shows at the at the same time that's you know when you start collecting bottles and you can open them together and have verticals of stuff and really see the arc of it you know i think that it's also a misnomer that natural wine can't age right you you can completely do verticals of natural wine through the years even the mirany wines which are meant to be had in on vintage essentially right you know vintage variation is is key yeah i think you know that every Every vintage is an album. Right. Totally. Yeah. I mean, it's like listening to like, you know, listening to live shows of the dead or whatever. Yeah. You know? It's like, that's... you're like, you're like, I'm listening to the same people and the same songs in different places at different times at different. And, and then the way you listen to it, like when you're listening to it, why you're listening to it, like all of that kind of like comes together to make this experience that is more than just kind of the same grapes squished the same way. Absolutely. Like put in the same, you know, vessel and then put in the same looking bottle. Sure. And there are environmental factors, obviously. You know, was it raining the day that we picked? Was it cold? Was it warm? Was it sunny? You know, what was all of that like? What time did it come into the winery? When did we get it into the tanks? Right. But there's also the emotional piece. You know, how are you feeling about it? What have you drank over the course of the last vintage that's influenced you? Right. You know, you're maybe trying to create a little more reduction. Or in 17, I was purposely trying to play with more volatility. Yeah. What is your winemaking setup like? Because I feel like, you know, so you, I mean, do you own land? And you, you, you're you not growing grapes on land that belongs to you, right? No, no. I mean, obviously, I think for most of us, that's a goal at some point. Right. But it will never be, I don't think, um, a situation where we have a 100-acre vineyard. Right. You know, it would be 15 acres or something right. like that. Right. My setup is essentially a lease situation with the vineyards that I'm in. I have long-standing relationships with them. The more that I've been able to work with them and the, the more the winery has grown, the more control over the farming 
we've been able to have, which has been great. Somebody else is growing grapes and you have kind of like a little parcel that you're leasing that is like their vines that they've been cultivating for years and then you kind of are in charge of that Absolutely. portion. And uh, with my main site, I took a thousand pounds from it in 2013 for my first vintage and a thousand pounds out of another vineyard and put those together and had 50 cases. Right. This year we took nearly 50 tons out of that same vineyard Whoa. and basically have about three quarters of the site. So three quarters of that site is all yours. And I think next year we will have the whole thing. Uh-huh. And also this coming year is the first year that all the sprays are organic and even approaching biodynamic in, in some form or fashion. Right. Just trying to use more teas, uh, better cover crops every year, et cetera. Cool. So you, you have these kind of parcels that you're leasing that you're getting grapes from and and then come harvest like are are you out there with your with a team like harvesting the grapes is somebody else doing that or i have picked yeah (laughs) it's it's really hard work yeah generally i pick uh the sparkling fruit Mm -hmm. i started a sparkling program in 2015 for traditional method sparkling wine or method champenois Mm -hmm. that is now both a pet nat program and a traditional method program but the traditional method program is still really small uh it's under two tons of fruit that's picked and it's impossible to get a picking crew out for that tiny amount yeah when you're first coming up essentially you just have to kind of piggyback onto a bigger producer's pick gotcha and that's how you get your fruit out of the vineyard right or if you're you know cool enough with the vineyard managers they'll let you go in there and get it right right so at this point you know with mason ridge where i'm taking the bulk of my fruit from we just go in there and pick it ourselves uh you know get a bunch of coffee get a bunch of croissants and uh show up in the morning and you know put a trailer on the back of my truck with some picking bins in it and just uh pick two tons and roll out no big deal just pick two tons and roll out it takes all day a lot of of croissants and a lot of coffee (laughs) it takes all day if you have a picking crew do that it's done in like 15 minutes it's incredible (laughs) (laughs) so okay so that so you get the grapes and then and then what happens where are you actually making the wine are you making it in the city or i did one vintage in the city i started at a facility in newburgh oregon which is about 35 minutes from portland it's, mm-hmm. it's the closest it's out by uh ponzi and adelsheim and uh, it's in the shehalem mountains which is kind of the first wine country town you get to when you're going down the 99 from uh-huh. portland that was essentially my first spot there was a a young crew of guys that were all of the same mindset in that facility. It was cheap. The so it's kind of the... a shared space, like a warehouse space. and uh, It was an old barn, uh-huh. essentially, um, it, that had a crush pad and an old press and a forklift that the brakes didn't work half the time. It was <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> and it was a great place to start, you know, because it was a little bit like having a weight on your baseball bat. Uh-huh. You know, and then when you get into a facility like we're at now that has like a proper press and a proper forklift and really (laughs) tall ceilings and, you know, everything just feels so much easier. Right. So doing it scrappy, kind of like trying to do your best with under all these circumstances, then you kind of level up and then you're like, oh, this is, then you push the level in other ways because like the kind of the basics of it have now become 
easy and doable with like equipment that works yeah. and stuff like that. You know, it's it's kind of uh, the same principle as um, I've listened to interviews with old hip hop DJs talking about learning how to scratch records on just like the worst equipment, you right. know, and when they finally got around to getting a proper mixer, how, how much faster it was and how much easier it was right. uh, because they had learned on the, like the hardest possible instrument. Right. Right, 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 right. Okay, so the ha- harvest is happening what in in Oregon in October, like October, and that's a pretty pretty short period of time for me. October uh, these days, you know, some some people are picking in late August uh-huh. or September. My sites are much colder. They're at the very top of the Willamette Valley. They're not near the winery. Mm-hmm. The winery now is in Eola Amity Hills, mm-hmm. and the the fruit is coming from about forty five minutes north of that and very high elevation Mm -hmm. um so i'm picking a little bit later than Mm -hmm. some people but still our sites are not getting as ripe as even the sites that are being picked weeks before us right right so it's like you know the fruit's good it gets harvested it's going to your facility what's the like actual period of time where you're kind of like actively engaged in making the wine from kind of that day one uh, I think our first sparkling pick this year was September 9th mm-hmm. was when we did the whole like, hey, everybody come have a cup of coffee and help us pick this traditional method fruit. Yeah. And it's very underripe at that point. We're picking for almost purely acidity in uh-huh. a lot of ways and just like the tiniest amounts of flavor that will come out later. Right. And then I think two weeks later is when we started kind of picking in earnest yeah. for pet nat. And then... Maybe a week after that, first yeah, October third, something like that, was when the fruit really starts coming in. You know, it feels very easy at first, so and then all of a sudden, somebody dumps twenty tons on your pad, and you're like, "We're gonna be here forever." That's you know, and that's I feel like the thing that like I had a really hard time wrapping my head around, and I think for a lot of people, it's like you don't think about. I mean, you know, it's like we know the wine comes from grapes, whatever, but just like actually how crazy it is that you're like, okay, we got to make wine and the fruit's got to be at this certain level of ripeness, depending on what kind of wine we're trying to make. And like when it's ripe, it's ripe. And you don't get to be like, oh, I'm busy this week. I can't go. I can't get it. Or like right, somebody dumps 20 tons of fruit at your front door and and you're like. Oh, I'm actually this week. I was planning on going out of town. I can't. I can't make wine this week. It's like you got to make it right then. Yeah, because it's like that's just it's, how it works. It's in. It's you know from the moment it comes off the vine, it is on a downward trajectory uh, towards right. volatility, and you either have to get it in the fermenters and as we do with the vast majority of our fruit, start to put it into some sort of carbonic maceration. So can you, let's let's talk about that for a second. Let's talk about, so the, the your carbonic Pinot Noir, the Marigny, mm-hmm. which is the wine that I was guzzling too much of at <laughs> uh, my wedding. So how is that made? Because that is, I feel like carbonic maceration is like a word that people hear. In t- I, like, I know what I like about, and somebody says that a wine is made with carbonic maceration. I'm like, oh yeah, I, I, I like a lot of wines like that. Because it's, it, you know, sure. it's like you're getting something, a lot of times it's like juicy and a little bit, there's a little bit of fizz sometimes. What's going on? Like, how is how is the Marini made? It's made uh, in a very traditional carbonic way where the entire tank is filled with CO2 from the same sort of, you know, large format torpedo looking gas tanks uh, that you see at 
bars or dentist office. You know, it's just got a huge amount of CO2. So the grapes are in there. They're squid. The grape juice is in there, or the whole the uh, grapes. It's, are it's in whole there? cluster. I don't use a distemmer on anything. So the grapes are going in there, like on their stems, just like a bunch of grapes. Yeah. I mean, kind of like what you would see at the grocery store, and those are just getting thrown f- into a big tank. Yeah, and Pinot Noir, um, when it is at you know full sort of maturity, looks like a pine cone. Um, oh, it's wow. very tight. You know, it's uh, when people first, I think, see especially Pinot on the vine. Um, it's not this sort of loose cluster. It's very prone to mildew because it's the berries are incredibly close to each other um, and no wind can get through it. So if it gets wet, it's prone to all this disease. Right. And that's one of the problematic things about Oregon and also one of the beautiful things is, you know, we're working with this very cold climate and it's slow to mature and you are trying to fight this window of finding your ripeness before it starts to rain for six months. Right, right. So you're kind of always at the mercy of like those conditions and all of that. And just, yeah, kind of biding your time and, and waiting on that exact moment. Right. You know, usually we try to call a pick and hopefully 48 hours later we've got pickers out there. Well, But with the carbonic method, uh, the tank gets filled with gas first. Right, so it's a, the tank. The tank is full of just bunches of grapes yes. that are just piled on top of each other. How mm-hmm. high, how high is this tank? Uh, I have used so many different vessels uh-huh. for this. Uh, it's begun in a very lo-fi way. I was at one point doing them in like essentially large picking bins, four foot tall picking bins, and then filling the tank with gas and then putting the fruit in and then more gas and wrapping the top of the thing with essentially restaurant cellophane. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I would take a pocket knife and poke a little slit into the into the top of cellophane. And if it almost knocks me out with the amount of CO2 coming back out, then I know we're, we're safe and right. I can take, it, take the, the top of it back up and the fermentation continues. Why whole clusters? And then why the CO2? What does the CO2 do? The CO2 is essentially sparging all of the oxygen out of the tank. You just used a word that I've never heard before. <laughs> sparging? Yeah. So it's just pushing all the oxygen out because it's the heavier gas. Okay. Um, so then all the oxygen is removed from the tank. The fruit comes in. You continue to push CO2 in so you know that there's no oxygen in the tank at all. And that way the berries are starved. Uh, for oxygen, which is how you traditionally perform a wine fermentation. Okay. You know, you crush the fruit, and then the yeast interacts with the oxygen to eat up the sugars and convert to alcohol. Okay. And that's a very normal kind of way, and you're managing the cap, which means that you, the I love Lucy moment of uh, what we call pigeage, where you're pushing it with your feet, uh-huh. you know, or yep. sometimes with something that looks like a gigantic toilet plunger, uh-huh, uh-huh. you know, and right. you're, you're pushing the cap into the juice because you don't want that solid matter to dry up. Right. Um, because once it does, you're prone to all sorts of volatility. Okay. With carbonic, each individual berry is undergoing its own enzymatic fermentation because you've driven all the oxygen out of the tank. So they're fermenting kind of internally, like each... Each from the grape inside out is fermenting from the inside out. So, like when you imagine like a piece of fruit, you know, when you get like, I don't know, like pineapple that's been in the fridge too long and it's kind of got that kind of fizzy, funky, yeah, like any kind of fruit that's just been sit like sitting for a long time, it's going to start to kind of ferment right internally. because those cells have to have energy to survive the cell structure of the the fruit, so it's essentially eating itself. 
and converting itself to alcohol via you know an internal mechanism. Okay, so you've got, so you got this tank and it's full of carbon carbon dioxide mm-hmm. and berries that are kind of or grapes that are fermenting internally. And you know they're hooked to uh, hooked to the the rachis. You know the whole thing is still on on the stem. Uh huh. You know, and each uh, petiole is I think the the word. See, here's the thing: is I'm still like learning. <laughs> you know, I'm so young in it that sometimes I'm like, I'm using the right terminology. God, I'm. Uh, I hope I'm using the right terminology on the bone up. But I feel like the, oh, you know, I mean, you know, <laughs> no, nobody who's listening to us like, no, n- well, that's not true. Actually, probably people know. Some people know a lot about wine. They're gonna be like, man, he's using the wrong yeah, word. But it's not you know. the petiole. Uh, but I'm pretty sure it's the the you know the thing that essentially the rachis is the middle part of the stem, and then each of the little things that comes off the rachis that holds the berry, yeah, is called the petiole and essentially you're trying to not break that because once that juice comes out of that berry it wants to have a traditional fermentation cool so that's one of the reasons gotcha so it's like it's kind of like it's like pulling the pin on a grenade like exactly then the juice just starts coming out and then it just wants to ferment the regular way but as long as it's like still like has that little cap in it yeah then it's 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 like doing its thing inside totally so then at what point do you actually when does it turn into juice when do you squish it well Partially, it turns into juice just from the weight of the fruit on itself. Oh, so the fruit is just like the fruit of the, the you know the weight of the fruit at the top is crushing the fruit at the bottom. Yeah, and then that turns to juice, and that actually does start to undergo traditional fermentation, and that juice is also going to create CO two. So the at one point the tank doesn't need to be gassed anymore because the juice is creating the CO2 for you, and it's just kind of self-regulating. So how long is this process? You know, like, how long is it in the tank doing this kind of carbonic, for you know, CO2 it fermentation? It completely depends on what you're looking for um, in terms of the, the structure of the wine. The Marini wines are somewhere between 7 and 11 or 12 days. Uh-huh. Um, okay, so that's pretty fast. Yeah, and then they're crushed. Like, we pull the... Uh, the tanks out. I have some really great partners um, now in the in the Marini, and they were able to help me get some proper tanks finally. Uh-huh, you know, so uh-huh. we've got these larger format uh, tanks that have a floating lid, and it sort of looks like a bicycle tire uh-huh. on the outside of it. So when the fruit is in there, we can put the lid at the very top, and you pump it up and fill it up with gas, and then we take the lid off. Interns will scoop the fruit out. Um, I'm too big to get in the tank. I, like, <laughs> <laughs> and they like, you know, you scoop the fruit out and you put it into the press and press the juice. And then while that first press cycle is happening, we wash out the tank mm-hmm. and then hook the hoses from the press back to that tank and feed that pressed juice straight back into the original vessel. And then the fermentation finishes as like a normal fermentation, uh-huh. like a juice-based oxygen-based fermentation. Cool. And so how long is that How long is that process? That can be anywhere from like two weeks to several months sometimes. Okay. And that just, it, does that just depend, depend on the conditions, like yeah, the temperature and the... And sort of the chemistry of the juice, uh, if there was enough nitrogen, yeast available nitrogen, all sorts of chemistry stuff that... Because we don't use any sort of inoculant. We're uh-huh. only using native yeast that were in the fruit or in the cellar. Um, and so it's sort of at its own pace. So like, 
I, we're hearing about this process of, of making of making the Marini. What are you not adding to this, or what are you not doing as a part of this process that people are doing in kind of like larger scale, more commercial winemaking? Like, what is what? Where I mean, right. in addition to the scale, like, what is the difference of like technique? You know, it's like. Well, it's it's just nothing added, nothing taken away. I mean, obviously, we're filling tanks with CO2. Right. But when you say nothing added, taken away, I don't think that people really know that there is there are things added. Like, you were just talking about yeast and that, like, you know, there are naturally occurring yeast that are in the air, that are, like, on the grapes, whatever, that will... Us. For, they'll, yeah. yeah. Like, every, you know, everything will ferment itself, given the opportunity. Mm-hmm. But, you know, a commercial winemaker is oftentimes adding yeast. It's more right? control, yeah. essentially. And what we're doing is essentially stepping away and removing controls to hopefully get a, a result that is a little more fantastical yeah. and surprising. So lab-based yeast, mm-hmm. which is essentially... Would you just uh, like buy online or something yeah, like that? Yeah, it's a yeah. culture. It usually comes out of a vineyard like... Montrachet yeast, you know, they've gone into this vineyard in France and they have pulled their strongest cultures and like, you know, culture after culture after culture got the thing so strong that it will ferment through anything, through high alcohol, through low temperatures, etc. Gotcha. Um, acids, um, tartaric acid is grape so acid. So add add additional acid to the wines just kind of on its own if you need acidity yeah like uh, acid adds are pretty common um you can deacidify a wine uh with uh, potassium bicarbonate um and all this stuff sounds probably a little scarier than it is right there's essentially three phases of winemakers there's people like me that are ab after uh no controls Mm mm-hmm and there are winemakers that are still very hands-on and have beautiful vineyards and are trying to make something that is completely controlled uh-huh. and essentially has things in it that's no different than you know eating a pack of gummy bears. Right, 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 right. For me, the, the main thing is keeping the vineyards organic, farming them with high intention, mm-hmm. um, understanding that that is the most the people that are most affected by that are the people that live in the communities around those vineyards and the people that farm them right drinking one bottle of wine that from a vineyard that has been sprayed is not the end of the world sitting on a tractor all day long and spraying a vineyard certainly can be right so there's kind of like an ethical i mean i think that's that to me is like when i start thinking about natural wine i'm like there is also like an ethic to it absolutely that you're like oh i don't want somebody to be like harvesting in a field full of pesticides. I don't want somebody like driving their tractor through a farm and, you know, get, you know, being exposed to like all of these carcinogens. Absolutely. I'm much more concerned with the social justice aspect of it than I am with the dogma of the seller. Right, 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 right. You know, although I'm very hands off, there's no additions in the wines aside from a slight SO2 sulfur addition Mm -hmm. at bottling. We're much more concerned with getting the vineyards right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. I mean, you know, you you don't want to want to shit where you drink. I no. Guess. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Andy, thank you so much for taking the time yeah, to thank hang you out with for us. having me. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah. All right. Let's go get something to drink. Let's do it.
Okay, thanks to Emil and Andy. And now here I am with Chris Morocco talking spicy, sweet sambal pork noodles. All right, Chris, not to get all Marvel comics on you, but Ooh. but let's talk about the origin story behind your <laughs> spicy, sweet sambal pork noodles. A rainy night, a loner. No, uh, so this is actually born of the meeting that you called where we talked about recipe names. Mm. And starting out like kind of, you know, in the food world a long time ago, I think I sort of thought about recipes in this like clear, linear nuts and bolts kind of way. And for a while, our naming conventions for recipes were very much like, oh, seared chicken with lemon oregano pan sauce and dot, 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 were, and were, dot, dot, dot. They were very literal, and they often mentioned like five of the nine ingredients. ingredients in there. I'm like, do we need to mention every herb in this recipe in the title? And you really pushed us to to take a step back from that, um, which I think, you know, in some ways we already had, but to really like take a couple steps back from that and ask ourselves, what what would be the recipes you know, that we would try to sell people on, you know, without a picture, without any mm-hmm. kind of clear descriptors, you know, or anything that's like quite as literal as, you know, we've we've been known to get in the past. What would that look like? What would those recipe names sound like? Yeah. I mean, I guess in a lot of ways, a recipe name is kind of like the headline for a story. Does it grab your attention? Does it make you want to read it? And especially Especially, as we all know in this day and age of social media, where there's so much out there pinging around and either something grabs you or it doesn't. Yeah. And either you keep swiping through or you stop. And I guess with with editors and and recipe developers now, how do we get people to stop more and actually read the recipe and cook it? Yeah. So we we sat down, right? And we created a list of, I mean, I don't know, uh, dozens of recipe names, you know, just not necessarily thinking about the actual like granular detail of like what all the recipes would be, but just like what what would be the things that we would want to say. So this started out as drunken bolognese. Hmm. I I like all of that. (laughs) Immediately. I'm like, yes and yes. And it's funny to see the evolution that this recipe actually went through, right? Because that's not what it came out being named. And I think this process sort of showed like, you know, kind of like a lot of the dynamics that kind of go into how you create a recipe, you know, how you create a dish, but then how you sell that recipe. And so it started out drunken bolognese because I, I simply sat there and said, okay, I love the idea of like a rich kind of one pot, meaty kind of comfort sauce. But why does bolognese always have to be this really specific thing? Mm-hmm. From a particular region in Italy with right. a particular set of ingredients. Right, which even then it's like, well, I mean, you know, bolognese in Italian, you know, could mean any kind of, you know, different things to different people on different sides of Bologna, right? But I think I wanted to kind of take a few steps back from that and sort of say, okay, well, what if what if we threw some soy sauce in it? What if we, you know, made it a little spicier and sweeter? Bolognese kind of means this rich, long-simmered, you know, know, meat sauce from a particular place, but what if we could just sort of reinvent it and think of it as something else and what would that be? And then I overlaid on that, you know, my love of pad ki mao or drunken noodles. It's kind of like that Thai noodle dish that isn't pad Thai. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, usually you'll see it like on the menu. And yeah. So explain, ex- describe drunken noodles for someone who hasn't had it. Yeah, so it's it's kind of a modest amount of ground meat, usually pork. It's often got like a dark sweet soy sauce, holy basil or Thai basil. It's got chili, so it's, you know, kind of super fragrant, kind of meat-based noodle stir-fry, if you will. And very sort of strong like soy and like oyster sauce often, component fish sauce, so it's really, really assertive. 
I just wanted to kind of create a marriage, you know, with this sort of drunken bolognese, if you will, of these two kind of sauces that I really, you know, love and have a, a huge fondness for. So you you started with the clear idea, but then as often happens, you end up going on a journey somewhere that you might not have expected. So what was that process like in terms of like, all right, I know what I want to make. And then you start making it and you kind of end up over here instead of over there. Right. So, I mean, drunken bolognese, you know, I, I wanted that dish to inform kind of my pantry ingredients for this. So I started pulling out stuff like oyster sauce, soy sauce, and I started pulling out, you know, all kinds of fresh chilies. But I realized I wanted to create something that was that could lean on more pantry staples. So mm. stuff that wasn't like really esoteric at all. And frankly, you know, kind of avoiding fish sauce. Um, just because I think it would make this such a specific dish that not everybody might appreciate. So instead of doing the fresh chilies, I ended up going with sambal olek, you know, just that like kind of like mildly fermenty, you know, chili paste. You can find it at most any decent grocery store these days. And I think it's, I would say it's kind of a cousin to um, sriracha. For those of you who obviously yeah. know sriracha, it comes in a jar, but it's, a, I mean, it's great on eggs. It's great on sandwich. It's great on anything. It's kind of a sweet, spicy uh, chili sauce. Yeah, and you can use a lot of it, which yeah. is nice. It's it's spicy, but it's not. I mean, I think we call for a third of a cup in this, so you can get a ton of chili flavor yeah. um, and richness and body into this dish without making it kind of overwhelmingly spicy. So, so I think I kind of had to dial in, you know, the the pantry staples that I wanted to lean on for this. But I knew that I wanted to make a sauce that. Unlike, you know, Pad Kimau, uh, where you have like a modest amount of ground pork, I wanted to do something that felt like and looked like bolognese, mm -hmm. you know, big torn leaves of basil, perhaps, you know, if it's in season or, you know, a little bit of tomato paste for the, like that rich kind of color and a little bit of extra umami. So, yeah, it all kind of, you know, ended up kind of coming together just as I kind of simplified the ingredients, figured out the process. And, you know, we kind of immediately like entered into that sort of stumbling block of, okay, like now I have two pounds of meat, you know, two pounds of meat, you know, worth of sauce and I want to brown it. And how should I do that? You know, and in the past, like we've talked about, like, you know, do you form balls and brown the balls off? Or, you know, in this case, I just literally ripped chunks of ground meat threw it into a, a large saucepan or small pot and, you know, just at least browned half of it. Okay, so are, are, we, are we getting into the step-by-step -step now? We're, we're getting into the into specifics, okay. well, just all right. to so start to walk okay. you through it. So we're getting step-by-step. So, all right, we, we end up with the, the recipe name, Spicy Sweet Sambal Pork Noodles. So you say, and I'm going to read this because this was something that sort of piqued my curiosity in a couple of reader comments as well. You know, you can heat the oil in a large heavy pot, yada, yada. Add half of pork to pot, breaking apart <laughs> into six to eight large chunks with a wooden spoon. Cook undisturbed until well browned underneath about five minutes. Okay, makes sense. Turn pieces and continue to cook, turning occasionally until pork is browned on two to three sides. I like that, about five minutes longer. Then you add some fresh ginger, garlic, sugar, and remaining, and remaining pork. pork to pot and cook, breaking up into small clumps until meat is nearly cooked through. And then you add the tomato paste, etc. Okay, so why why explain the <laughs> divide of the pork? Back. Yes, so you're, you you divide you do half the pork brown yeah. first, and then you add everything else in. What, right. It, so why? 
so my my thinking is this you really honestly cannot brown two pounds of pork at once mm-hmm. you know and already not that this is a super step meaning meaning that it just kind of steams and cooks you, in its own fat yeah, but doesn't get brown if you just dump it into the pot it's just going to kind of get steamy yeah. uh, that first side might get a little bit of color mm-hmm. but as soon as you flip it it's going to be like water See, i've had this we did another podcast for ba's best bolognese with one our very own andy barragani uh, and talked about this whole browning process as yeah. well I've had that problem before, but didn't realize why I was having that problem before. But you cooks, good home cooks or chefs or whatnot, will always talk about, quote unquote, don't crowd the pan. Yeah. And if you want to brown something, if you want caramelization, you need some space in the pan so there's not excess moisture. There it needs can, to be room to dis- brown. Dissipate, yeah. All right, so you're, you're browning half of it. That allows you to get some caramelization on the meat. Because it's and- better to get great caramelization and get all those Maillard reactions on at least half of the meat. And the flavor really wakens up. Flavor, yeah. Oh, I mean, you know, the flavor development and the intensification, um, you know, and the benefit you get from having some of the meat really browned. The fact that, like, the remainder of the meat it doesn't brown, you know, that second pound. So it of needs meat. to, it'll cook through, obviously, when it's in the cooking, braising process. But Completely. it does, it, that does, not everything needs to brown. All right. So you have the exactly. browning flavor, you add the ginger, the garlic, whatnot, chili paste, um, soy sauce, vinegar, two cups water, bring to a simmer, reduce heat to low, and cook uncovered and stirring occasionally until sauce is slightly thickened and flavors have melted about 45 minutes. So, one question we I kind of hate that word meld, but you know, well, we're kind of like that. Really? Yeah. I, I feel like because there's no clear, like, oh, it went from being like raw to cooked. I mean, obviously it's already cooked, but it's this subjective, like, oh, it's melded. Yeah. I feel like oops, people but must there, just but, sit but, there but, and be like, Chris, you. I, well, no, you know. but I, all right. So this is like kind of just recipe talk in general. I, it, I don't want to say it annoys me because a large degree of cooking should be left up to the cook. And that cook's intuition and understanding when something smells done or feels done. Yeah, or, empowering you know, them. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, there's this notion of recipes, everyone wants them to be exact. Well, is it 13 minutes or 16 minutes? I'm like, depends on the oven, depends on the size of the pan. It's There is no exact time, and sometimes it's done when it's done. And, like, you yeah. kind of have to trust yourself and taste it. If it doesn't taste quite there, let it go a little bit more and reduce a bit more. So we, we have this 45-minute sort of braising period with all the ingredients in there. For a while, the name kicking around the office was Sambolognese. Sambolognese, <laughs> kind of as a, a, a shortcut name. I put that out there. And, and, wh- I, I and what happened? Maybe, well, I think, you know, everybody got really tripped up around the idea of, like, what is bolognese and what isn't bolognese. And I think they just felt like this is not bolognese. Yeah. And for me, I, you know, and I'm curious, like, what you think about this. Because for me, you know... I, I know we get into trouble sometimes when we kind of like, you know, claim like any kind of like, you know, kind of expert position on yeah, food that like we're just not, you no. know. And anything suggestion authenticity will elicit a rash of responses on right. on the Twitter and whatnot. And understand, and, I get it. And it's like there's – that opens up a whole other discussion. But – and I guess my – I don't know. With bolognese, you could, yeah. Is there milk in there? No. Is there Parmesan cheese? No. Does it go My for three like, hours? No. Does it look like bolognese when I look at the picture, which is gorgeous by our photographer, Chelsea Craig? I'm like, it looks like bolognese. You could call it that and be fine. But the question is, do you want to have to explain to it and defend it and whatnot? Line and of ultimately, inquiry, yeah. Probably not. Probably not, right? So we had drunken noodles became some bolognese which then became spicy, sweet, sand pork noodles, yeah. you know? And 
I don't know. I mean, people seem to be into it, and I, you know, it certainly is delicious, and it's the same dish it always, you know, kind of was or yep. was bound to become. But yeah, it definitely took a journey. So, a couple questions about the recipe itself. First of all, we call for two pounds of ground pork uh, and 16 ounces of either fresh ramen noodles or spaghetti. So let's, why two pounds? Why not one? Why eight? How do we decide on the six to eight serving size? Right. Well, you know, I kind of wanted to just go big because I feel like with anything like, you know, not that this is cooking for as long as like a regular bolognese would because, you know, we're relying on these ingredients that already have a ton of flavor development having happened in the past, right? So like soy sauce, it's fermented. It ferments for however many months. So you get all the benefit of adding that ingredient and all of the the flavor development that's happened along the way, right? So the cook time is actually relatively minimal, you know? You're because, not, you, because you have these ingredients that already have a depth of flavor. They've had a massive head start yeah. in the flavor department, exactly. Whereas traditional bolognese, you know, you need the cooking process process to really yeah. kind of draw out all those flavors. Going back to, you know, just like traditional bolognese, if you're going to go through the effort, you know, to make this, you might as well just make extra, make yeah. double, you know, it's not that I think everybody's going to necessarily want six to eight portions of it at like a one time, but you're already making this, you know, and it's going to freeze or it's going to hang out in the fridge for, you know, beautifully for days. So why not just make more? And, you know, the, the fact that, you know, wanting to kind of like frame it as this kind of like hybrid bolognese, you know, but with like these kind of like cool, like Thai, Asian, whatever flavors. We wanted to kind of have the option of shooting it with ramen noodles or, you know, we, we tried it with ramen noodles, you know, in development. And we also tried it just with regular spaghetti. And it was awesome with both. You can find fresh ramen noodles a lot more nowadays. They come in different size packs. But one pound of dried spaghetti. Is there a reason we call for more fresh ramen than we do dried Pasta. The yields come out to be some like pretty close to being the same, just because a fresh noodle is already you know heart hydrated, right? So it absorbs less liquid oh, as it cooks. Look at you. Whereas the dried pasta absorbs more water as it cooks, so it kind of shakes out shakes. similarly. So you know? a, so a pound of dried feel once it's all cooked feels closer to a pound and a half. Yeah, of fresh. I think I originally tried calling for eighteen ounces, oh my and, and <laughs> people put the smack down on that. Chris is. They're like, uh, 16 ounces sounds fine, Chris. <laughs> Chris is definitely the most exacting member of our test kitchen staff. I thought one reader on, on, on the dot com had a good question about uh, her daughter's, his daughter is gluten free, can mm. you use rice noodles? I would Absolutely. assume rice noodles yeah. would be great. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, just like you would not want to use like the, the vermicelli, vermicelli, the really uh, angel hairy one, thicker one. Also, uh, Alex Beggs, our writer here at Bon Appetit, um, when she was testing the recipe and, and writing about it, she used. Uh, Korean rice cakes, um, which I love, and they're kind of squishy and starchy and squeaky, and the mm -hmm. little like sort of nubs of uh, of rice chewy. flour yeah. or cake sort of things, and those are great, especially with the typical sort of spicy red sauce of some sort. Yeah, um, fantastic! I love that idea. My wife and I will uh, will have this this week. I'm going to go with the ramen noodles probably, just because nice. again they're accessible now. Um, I eat enough regular dried Italian pasta in my life. Mm -hmm. uh, I need to mix it up. But don't forget the butter at the end. Even oh, yeah. with the Asian flavors. So, Soy, yeah. butter, sambal, oh, it's all good. Yeah, same technique as we often uh, sort of uh, call for, a little pasta water, a little butter, mm -hmm. sort of create that silky glossiness at the end. Absolutely. Um, all right, you can find this recipe on bonappetit.com. It is, can you give me the, the correct name, Chris? Go Spicy, ahead. sweet, sambal, pork noodles. Thank you, Chris Morocco. <laughs> Thank you. 
The Bon Appetit Foodcast is produced by Carrie Polis and Christina Che and produced and edited by Emma Wurtzman. Our theme music is by Nathaniel Wurtzman. We have new episodes every Wednesday, and if you want to tell us about this or any other episode, email us at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.